Yes, yeah, so the RHS have just backed this concept and they are now selling the rescue boxes in Wisley. They're trialling in Wisley, it was only launched last month and hopefully it will be rolled out to all their garden centres. Hello, hello one and all and welcome to episode 30 from Pop and Closh Garden Podcasts. I'm Joff Elphick, a gardener, freelance writer and garden speaker from Gloucestershire in the UK. This podcast is produced with the help of my sponsor, the lovely Genus Gardenware. The clothes gardeners wear have to work for all activities and in all conditions. And this is what Genus Gardenware are absolute experts at. Have a look at their range of beautifully designed and highly practical clothing by visiting genus.gs. This week, I made my annual pilgrimage to the Business Design Centre in Islington, London, where the Garden Press event is held. Founded in 2006, it was set up to bring together gardening brands, businesses, societies and charities with members of the horticultural media. As always, there are new and innovative ideas and products, some of which you will get to hear from now. With the interviews playing back-to-back, I start by talking to Simon, who's got an award-winning, self-contained and rechargeable fountain kit. I'm with Simon from Hydria Life. Hi, Simon. Simon's just grabbed me to show me one of their products. Now, you better start explaining what I'm doing here. So, uh, this product we launched last year, it is a water fountain kit. You can turn any plant pot you like into a water feature in minutes, okay? Um, It won new product of the year at Glee, so we're pretty pleased about that. And we're here today to promote it to all you kind sirs. So, very simple concept, you have a bowl, you put it into your plant pot, now this one, this gorgeous cappy pot, it fits in perfectly. If you want to put it in a larger pot, you plant it like you would plant anything. And you could put planting around it, couldn't you? You could put planting around it if you like, so if you want to put it in a larger pot like that, you just pop it in the middle, you know. You take this device here, this is a rechargeable water pump, it's got a lovely little cute mag connect there, charge it up overnight eight hours charge pop it in put in a fountain head of your choice it comes with a couple of fountain heads cascade head and this is a sprinkler head pop that in put on the decorative tray cover it in you know beautiful pebbles like this anything you like yeah you take your remote control here it is you press play okay yeah now it's got LEDs you can see here and they look rather gorgeous at night even if you can't really see them during the day the key thing about it is that it has timer control okay and this is the question everybody wants to know how long does this thing run for if it's rechargeable batteries people expect they'd have to recharge it the whole time not true we spend a lot of time developing the technology behind this this product if you use it for two hours a day which is about the usual use time it'll run for over two months before you need to recharge it. That is something. Yeah. That is something. It's an entire British summer, if you're lucky, because we don't <laughs> often get two months in our British summer. But also, you know, just in case it is raining, of course, you can just easily pick this thing up and you can take it inside. It doesn't matter where you put it. You can locate it wherever you want. It's light as a feather. It's as versatile as you like. You like it in this plant pot. You put it in there for a while. When you get bored of the way it looks, you put it into another plant pot, you know? Yeah anything you like. Um, 
and there you go that's our product that's fantastic what i like about it is it's so portable yeah you don't have to think about getting on in a main supply or anything like that and the dangers associated no with supply. electricity um you can have it outside but also you know you could have it in a, in a conservatory or something like that couldn't you that's right and unlike solar it actually works when you want it to work um, and it can work indoors and at night and if you've got troublesome children for sleeping as I do I find it works quite well putting them to sleep yes. not underneath it you understand <laughs> not this time but next, yes. <laughs> not this time next to the bed so that's right so this is our product and we believe it will breathe new life into water features because water features used to be a very big market but for years now it's been you know the same sort of product you know big pieces of resin you need to do outdoor engineering to get electricity in and even then you end up putting it where you don't want it and then when you get bored of the look you can't change it <laughs> so this um this retails for 159 pounds 99 so it's a very good very competitive price but you get 21st century technology with it as well yeah. if you want to take it with a cappy pot as well one of these gorgeous pots we do a bundle for 199 pounds available online from our website there you go. And your website is? Hydrealife.com. Okay, and is it, are they available in any shops or is it purely online? Purely online at the moment, but they will be available in Blue Diamond Garden Centres and Long Acres this summer. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, Simon, thanks for your time. Great. Thanks for showing me. I think it's a Thank great product, it really Thank is. You. Thank you. While I've been on the Hydrea um, stand, I've just met Kate from Cappy Europe, who's going to tell me about her sustainable pots. Kate, tell me more. So, um, Cappy Europe has a factory in Holland. It's a CO2 neutral factory. So everything we produce is made from recycled materials, uh, fishing nets, um, uh, corks from bottles, um, recycled planters of, um, of our own production as well. And then these are made into designer-led, really, uh, lightweight planters. The orange insulating layer you see uh, inside some of them is um, to be able to, as the sign says, your plants uh, live longer because they insulate them from the cold and stop them from overheating in the, in the sun. Yeah. And we have a variety of sizes and models, but primarily they are um, modern looking for the, for the, for the innovating um, person that likes you know a little bit different than ceramic and terracotta yes yeah now I, I also see uh, is that a water butt there that's a water butt so this is the largest size of one of our planters that we made into a water butt um, all the connections come with it to to the uh, um, what you call it the drain pipe. Drain, the drain pipe. pipe yeah you can also plant it up as well so the top of it is a tub Oh, so so it, it's a, it's a water, but and you can, yeah. oh I see it's got a recessed lid, so you yeah. can plant into it. Yeah. What a good idea! And, and then that gives you a bit more of a desirable water butt, rather than some yeah. of the um, quite boring ones yeah. that are out there. I mean, you could have trailing plants coming yeah. over the edge of it, couldn't you? Definitely, yeah. absolutely. And as long as um, as long as you um, ensure that the tap is turned off properly, yeah. then then the, then there's no pro no problem, and you can make it a feature. 
Yes. Now, where can we get hold of these pots, Kate? Uh, primarily uh, Dobby's Garden Centres, Blue Diamond Garden Centres. They also come with a lifetime guarantee now. now that's a, a huge thing. In our industry, there aren't many pots that can do oh, that. That's amazing, yeah. So, um, and they have, um, they don't, obviously they don't break because of um, what they're made of. And they don't fade. They've got UV protection on them. That's amazing. So just to recap, so made from 100% waste or um, fishing nets, as you say, their production is CO2 neutral. That's correct. Um, What sort of size is the range from? It seems like they're from about 10, 15 litre upwards or is it 20 litre? So on the litres, I'm not sure, but it's a 35 centimetre, this one. Yes. And they can go up to, oh, I think that's... uh, 1.45? Yeah, 45 on a height of... I don't know. 1.2? 2, 1.2, yeah. Yeah, okay, that gives us a good idea. Well, Kate, thank you very much. It's been really good that I got attracted over this way by Simon, and now I've got to meet you as well, so thanks for your time. Very nice to meet you as well. Thank you. I'm with Karen Abbott from Spear & Jackson, who have got 260 years of experience in the manufacture of garden tools, Karen. I don't look that old, do I? You weren't there from the start. I'm very aware of that. That's true. you know, you've got all that experience, but you don't stand still because you've got new products for this year, haven't we you? We have, yeah. Um, a few of the things that we're doing this year have been designed with the medium size handles. So this is a new um, Dutch style trowel. So it's on the, um, it's, it's sort of a combination really between a spade and a trowel. Um, yes, so if people imagine those sort of heart-shaped trowels almost, aren't right, they? Yeah. But it's got a longer handle, probably a foot or more long. That's right, um, so that you can use it if you have limited mobility. People that are in wheelchairs, things like that, can still reach to the ground with it. Or if you're standing to work, you can reach into a, a raised bed and you can kind of get between the plants. So we found that these medium-sized handles are becoming a lot more popular these days. And they've got an interesting shape. They're not sort of scoops like the classic no, trowel, are they? It's designed really to create, if you draw it towards you, um, to create a shallow furrow in the soil. So when you're planting out seedlings um, and small plants, um, also to, it will dig because it's got um, chamfered edges. So it's got a sharpish edges so it'll cut through weeds and things like that as well and it's in stainless steel i see as well it's it's mirror polished stainless steel um an ashwood handle which has been weatherproofed so that it will uh, stand the test of time um not i don't know whether it'll last 260 years but we uh, we live in hope um yeah they look really interesting have you got anything else coming out this year karen we've got um another weeding tool again Ah, these look great another medium-sized handle this is um a cape cod weeder so developed originally over in cape cod in massachusetts in the us of a um, and this one it has like it's almost like a pick head handle uh, blade push it into the soil and then draw it sideways underneath the weeds and it will cut through all the um, the weeds and, and yeah and i, I like weeders like that they they yeah, work really well yes, don't they, they yeah. the, i know the japanese produce similar sort they of uh, tools but that's great and again with the long handle yeah um, and a nice little hanging leather thong at the end yes. so you can carry it easily and, and that's got a sort of a hammered finish hasn't this it? this is carbon steel with a, a hammer finish on it so um, it's it's a hard working tool really this one um, this is part of our elements range the elements range is um, designed for more for allotment work and, and, and growing um, the traditional range which is the one we looked at previously is the more general purpose the one that everybody really likes this one because it looks like the kind of 
um, tools that you would have seen in your grandfather's shed um, and they're still incredibly popular these days. And what else have you got here Karen? There's an interesting look, what's that? I don't know if you've got an example of it but there's a the, the traditional stainless flower spade, yeah. yes. Oh you have got, oh look at that, yes you've got one here. They're like a little spade I had on the beach back in the day. <laughs> Almost. We just need a bucket to go with it. And then but far better be made, fun. I will add. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so again, in the Ashwood handles with the stainless steel, this one's got a double rivet to it, so it's got some, it's got some weight behind it as well. Um, again, it has the chamfered edges, and this one is for um, mainly moving and, and sort of splitting perennial plants um, and working in borders and things like that. Yeah. So again, it gives you... The opportunity to work um, at low level in in between plants um, and up in raised beds too. That looks like a really handy thing to yeah, have in in nice. the shed, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's a nice one. One thing that stands out, Karen, is that all these tools look really well made. Well, I think that's the reputation that Spear and Jackson have had, for, and that's what's kept us going for as long um, as as we've had the 260 years and. Most people say we are the tools to trust. You know, it's a reputation that's been hard won, and we do try our very best to maintain that with the products that we bring to market, and obviously the ones that we've had for a very long time as well. So, uh, yeah, it's um, it's the business is, is still doing well, and we diversify. You know, we when we started we weren't making things like gloves or the watering cans and things like that but now the range is much fuller than it used to be got some saws i see yeah we've got a really nice um, and this is a bit vicious looking actually and this is our latest pruning saw so one of those uh, sort of yeah, pruning saws you say yeah, yeah. Sort, of, sort of a blade about just over a foot or so long nice yeah. long curved handle yeah. great for taking off branches That's on apple right. trees and things like that absolutely um, and it comes with the scabbard and that will sit on a belt loop as well so you can you know feel a bit like uh, quick draw uh, yeah absolutely yes. or uh, some kind of barbarian with a with a sword strapped to your leg yes um, yeah that's uh, that's that and then we've got our newest um gloves these are our that's a leather palms glove these are a leather palmed glove with a flexible cloth back and the palms and the two main fingers and thumb are extra padding on there so where you take the most pressure when you're digging and, and working just to give you a bit more comfort so they're very good for keeping your hands cool in summer and warm in winter so now, all these products are, are new or well, most of them are new yeah. um, are they available are they already available and out there in the shops everything apart from the gloves at the moment um, is available now um, you will probably find the biggest representation online um, but a lot of the garden centres are starting to take these things in. They are they are only just arriving into stock at the moment. The gloves will be here in the next few weeks, uh, but not currently available. Um, but they will be here for the for the selling season, really. So yeah, most of the rest of it is is out there now. Good. Well, thank you, Karen. It's so lovely to speak to a company so old. I've just spoken to Hawes Watering Cans, who are oh, one of the yes. oldest yeah. producers of watering yeah, cans. Absolutely. So there's, there's some real history in there this is, in this yeah. room today. Between us, we've got quite a good age, I think. <laughs> thank you. Nice to speak to you too. Thank you. I'm with Adrian Bloom. Now, if you know the name, it's it goes hand in hand with Foggy Bottom. Adrian, hello. Hello. Now. What are you doing here today, Adrian, at the Garden Press event? Well, I'm actually uh, presenting a book which won't be published until September, which is called Foggy Bottom, A Garden to Share. And um, I'm trying to, the, the book is actually here now, I've had it printed, and um, these are just a few copies just to show some of the press. Um, but uh, the idea is to, to do it in September and hopefully to 
produce it and sell it through garden centers through the uh, September period and only garden centers primarily so it, it gives the focus on plants and plants and gardening for that time. Some garden centers are already quite interested and obviously I have to work on that for a little bit more yet. So um, also self-publishing, of course I have to get a certain number in order to bring a price down. The price is already for a lot of people going to be a lot at 50 pounds but of course um, sometimes I remind people well how much do you spend on a plant you know in a garden centre particularly if it's a shrub or a small tree it's probably going to be more than that anyway how much you pay for a pair of shoes and uh, this is something that's going to last you for many many years so I think we need to make that comparison and uh, I think well I'm bound to say aren't I that it's an investment for people to make. No. Is it the story of Foggy Bottom, your garden, from, from its very inception? Yes, it is. Um, I, I took uh, images or photographs with my camera. In those days, it was uh, film. And um, I've had those digitized for this. But I actually do it a different way around, is that I, I show the garden as it is today to start with, in order that people are sort of walking into the garden, guided by me, and all the captions of the pictures are by me and then they understand what the whole garden represents. Then the back third of the book is the development of the garden and through the periods that it took, which was about 50 plus years. Yes, yeah. I mean, I've been looking at your photographs, they're beautiful. I was going to ask you who the photographer was, but it, they're all your, own, all your own shots. Yes, they are. I've got a very talented son, Richard Bloom, who's a professional photographer, and um, he knows more about photography than I do, but I happen to live in the middle of a garden, so and I've got a fairly good camera, so uh, I hopefully getting up early in the morning is not entirely wasted. <laughs> yes, true. Um, so this book will be available from the 2nd of September? Yes, actually in Garden Centres from the 2nd of September. The official publication date is the 2nd of October. So if everything works out, uh, the book will be available in the autumn. That's fantastic. Well, Adrian, thanks for your time, and okay. we look forward to seeing the book. I don't, not at all. I'm with Josh from Hall's Watering Cans, one of the oldest, or the oldest watering the oldest. can manufacturer in the country. Uh, old friends of the show, I spoke to them last year, but Josh is going to talk to us about the art of watering. So this year with Hawes we're developing the art of watering. It's a new concept we think for the sort of gardening industry. We've introduced last year a range of eight brass roses that go all the way from extra fine to extra coarse in both bedding roses and potting roses. So potting roses with a small round face and bedding roses with a nice big oval domed face. Uh, and we're using each rose for different applications. So really fine, really gentle roses for seeds and seedlings, all the way through to coarser roses and extra coarse roses for use with dirty water or for feeding and things like that. We're developing the idea that people need to really care for the things that they're buying. So people are buying seeds, people are buying plants, and if you don't take care in how you water them, you're going to kill them, they're going to die off. So you really need to nurture them, look after them. So we're introducing the idea of the art of watering to help people sort of develop their knowledge in gardening. That, that would be really interesting and one thing we talk, talked about just before we were recording was the fact that these roses you know you recommend certain roses for use of with nematodes for instance yes absolutely so nematodes are sort of 
you're always getting a rose clogged when you're using nematodes. They bunch together and they clog the roses. So we've developed a rose with bigger holes, uh, two millimeter holes to allow them to flow through. Uh, and when you've got a watering can with a really nice amount of pressure in it, so with our long spout with the watering can, you generate lots of pressure to allow the water to push through the rose. And then we recommend when you have the rose turned upwards, it pushes the water up into the air and then lets it fall really naturally down onto the ground. So having a coarse rose that doesn't block allows you to spread those really evenly around your garden or your beds or your plants or whatever you need to use. Now Josh, in front of me you've got this brilliant display in a cabinet and it's basically all the processes that a watering can, can go through to be made and uh, I'm astonished by how much work goes into them. Just talk us through from start to finish. So we start off with various coils of material, whether that be galvanised steel, whether it be brass or copper and each watering can goes through around 200 steps to become a full watering can. We start with blanking the material, uh, so the coil goes through a machine and it's blanked out into its sort of net form. Those net forms are rolled and moulded and pressed using hand tools, using machines, using hydraulic presses uh, to give them the shape that they have. Uh, each component is then soldered individually into the watering can to create the shape that you see as a watering can. Um, the base is spun on using a lathe uh, with a little ram that folds the edge over onto the body. Once we've got a complete can, it then goes through to be powder coated. And the powder coating uses a coloured powder that sticks to the watering can using electronic charges. It then goes into the oven and we bake it nicely at 160. Uh, while we're doing that, we go to the roses. So each of the roses has, in this case, four components. Um, they are sort of raised and punched and moulded to create the shape and then each part is assembled and hand soldered together. Um, we then go through and everything's packaged in our recycled packaging um, to make the final product. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, just looking at the amount of parts that go into a single watering can is amazing. But thanks for your time, Josh. Lovely to see you here again. Lovely to see you as well. Tom. hope you have a successful show. Yeah, thank you. You too. Take care. Here I am, I'm with Sarah Gerard-Jones. Morning, Sarah. Hello, how are you? Yeah, very well. Now, Sarah's from the Plant Clinic. Now, it's really interesting what she's doing. Sarah, let's start with this box that looks like something I'd keep in my cabinet in the bathroom. It's got a big cross on it. Yes, yeah, so this is a, a plant rescue box. So I came up with this concept to help end plant waste. It's a little bit like the concept of the wonky veg box. So when plants no longer look perfect, they are usually binned. And they're binned in their millions worldwide, billions probably worldwide. So if you're an online retailer and the plant uh, that you have is no longer looking its best, it will get thrown away as, uh, along with the plastic pots. And everything that's used to grow that plant will be wasted. The peat, the fossil fuels, the water, everything gets wasted. So this concept is trying to end that problem. Um, so you put the plant, the retailer puts plants in that are considered to be imperfect. Uh, they can put as many or as few in a box as they like and they can set the price of that box depending on what's in there. And then you can buy it online and it gets posted out to you and you get to save these plants. Now you, you told me um, these are available at places like uh, Wisley, aren't they? Yeah, so the um, RHS have just backed this concept and they are now selling the uh, rescue boxes in Wisley. They're trialling in Wisley, it was only launched last month and hopefully it'll be rolled out to all their garden centres. I mean, it's looking good because on launch day, uh, we sold out the boxes in four hours. So, I mean, there's such a market for this. People love the idea and it's so rewarding to save plants. 
Yeah. Now, one thing you're uh, you're keen to stress is is plant health. Uh, sorry, soil health. Soil health. When it comes yeah. to house plants, uh, we're always used to sort of sterilising soil for use in house plants. But you're you're taking a different approach, aren't you? Well, yeah. I mean, I think gardeners are very aware of what's going on in their soil and how important things like worms are and nematodes are in their soil outdoors. But we don't talk about that in how important that is in houseplants. They're in such a sterile environment already in our homes, but actually uh, you can have the same kind of soil that you do outside in your garden, in your houseplants. And if you get the soil and the substrate right and everything living in there, then you're you're winning. You know, you're halfway there to keeping your houseplant alive. Now, to me, it's a bit like having a healthy gut biome, it's isn't exactly it? exactly that. Yeah, in, exactly in humans, that. so... Yeah. Okay. So we're feeding those healthy bacteria in your... This is not bad bacteria, by the way. This is things that are going to benefit the root health. So, so my daughters, for instance, have got house plants. How can they add some healthy bacteria to their, to their potting soil? Uh, well, you can actually buy a, a rhizo, um, mycorrhizal fungi that you can sprinkle into your substrate. Um, we have a plant feed here called liquid gold leaf, which actually feeds that fungi and that will grow. And actually, if you have mycorrhizal fungi around the roots, that helps the nutrient uptake and the water uptake of your roots. So um, there are additions you can make to your substrate that will create a good, healthy flora in there. How can people... a if they're not going to Wisley, buy some of these plants, mm -hmm. and how can they get hold of um, your, your other products? Um, so if you can't get to um, a garden centre like uh, Wisley, you can buy rescue boxes online. If you visit my website, which is theplantrescuer.com, that will give you all the information you need to know there. There's about 20 retailers who are selling different kind of plants. You can get a rare plant box if you like, or you can get a standard box. Um, and the products uh, Soil Ninja and Liquid Gold Leaf also have their own websites. Um, I link to those on my website too, so you can find out about everything there. And the concept of the plant clinic is on my website. That was the uh, Chelsea Gold Award winning concept. Yeah, congratulations yeah. on that. Thank That's you fantastic. So much. Well, look, Sarah, thanks for your time. Wish you the best of luck with everything. Hope it goes well. Thank you so much. Nice to meet you. I'm with Sean Kelly from Fauna Bird. Morning, Sean. Good morning. Uh, nice to meet you. I stopped in my tracks, didn't I? You did. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I spotted your products, which are amazing. Tell us about them. Okay, so Fauna Bird uh, are a Dutch company, been uh, going since 1951. Uh, as recently as 2016, they helped um, work on the technology to uh, salvage the laminate film from the inside of drinks cartons. Now, this is really important because I, I can't recycle my drinks gardens nope, at home not. I don't know yep. whether any councils do nope, that at there, all there's very very few um, factories that are able with, to use the technology to strip the laminate film from the inside uh, they've worked with, exclusively with Tetra Pak so, so between themselves and Tetra Pak they've come up with the technology they strip out the film which saves it going to landfill or to incineration and they regranulate it and then they make a new second life bird feeder range um, for fat balls, suet box, uh, peanuts, um, suet pellets and so on. And it's quite a range and I mean what's, what strikes me about them is not only are they made out of recycled material but they actually look quite nice they do. don't they? Yeah absolutely. They're really attractive. They're, yeah they're, they're different, they're quite unique in the market, they do stand out as you say we managed to capture as you walk past for that very reason. Uh, we think they look great in any garden, they break the norm. Uh, for products that have been out there for a long, long time. You've got a little example of how it's broken down. So you've got your uh, uh, beverage carton yep. and then the plastic 
lining from inside is yep. taken out and then it's granulated, it's granulated and from there and there it's put back into the uh, kit that makes the uh, injection mold and it's turned back into a new product yeah and, and are they, where are they made at the moment They're made in holland okay yeah, now you've got other things in your range, yeah. not just the feeders, there's yeah. an attractive little bamboo uh, feeder Absolutely, as well. Absolutely, yeah. So we supplement the range with a range of naturals and they are a mix of bamboo and raffia design on metalwork uh, along with some earth uh, ceramic products for both nest boxes and fatball feeders. Yeah, now the, these these fat wall feeders with the sort of the was it, is that bamboo or am I using yep. the wrong terminology? No, it's yes, bamboo. bamboo. Yep. I mean they sort of look like small lampshades, don't they? Absolutely. I'm trying to yeah, yeah. give but people again, an idea. They're different in the market. They yeah. stand out. They complement the rest of the range. They look great in a garden. They look great, and they look great in garden centres and retailers yeah. and that sort of high end boutique type stores. Now I did like the look of the nest boxes. Yep. They're ceramic, aren't they? They are. Yeah. Than where they come in two colours, we do a natural buff colour and a grey colour, uh, and they're just natural earth ceramics. And they're sort of a pyramidal shape almost, they aren't are, they? Yeah, yes. yeah, they're a bit again, they're different, you know, they, you, they're different to anything else that's in the market. And I, su- wood. I suppose a squirrel isn't going to get in that, no, is absolutely he? Absolutely not. He's going to wear his Absol- teeth out. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, no, they're a lovely product. Um, well, good luck. I hope, it, hope it's a good day for you. Thank you. Um, but yeah, it really caught my eye, so thanks for your time. Yeah, nice to meet you. Thank you. I'm with T from the plant clinic. Now, I spoke earlier, but uh, we didn't speak spiders, did we? No, unfortunately we didn't, so let's do it now. <laughs> yeah, now, you were recommended uh, by Jane Perone. She said you've got to go and speak to T about her spiders. So, what's this all about? I'm an arachnologist, so I'm very passionate about spiders. And one of the things that I'm trying to do with the work that I'm doing here and just in general is get people to understand the importance of them, not just outside in the garden, but in the home as well, and just accept them a little more. They get terrible press. They've got a really bad rap. And I like to think that I'm keeping the pro spider propaganda machine well-oiled by being out here and telling everyone that they're not that bad. They're actually really helpful, really useful to have around and vitally important to the environment that we also inhabit. So, how many spiders have we got in this country, do you know? Um, I can tell you that we've got, I think last time I checked was about 650 species, uh, as far as individuals are concerned. Far more than we know. I didn't mean, yes, lots I, I, I realised I said how many spiders. I don't know them all personally, but you know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's been, I'm sure there's been some more descriptions since, but around about 650 different species. Okay. Uh, yeah. Are we discovering more? I mean, are we getting any that are coming in, I don't know, let's say with plants yes, that are being imported? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So we're seeing an increase lately in uh, imported and potentially invasive slash establishing species. And a lot of it comes from the horticultural industry. So they come in from hothouse in the Netherlands for example Uh, some of them come in from further afield on more exotic imports but mostly the ones that we know of and the ones we're familiar with the ones that have established are species like Euloborus plumipes which we know as glasshouse spider or feather-legged orb weaver it's got a few common names it won't survive outside in our climate but you'll very very often see it in garden centers so it'll come in with the plants it'll set up camp in the garden centers and you'll see them once you start noticing them you'll start seeing them everywhere in garden centers but they're quite cryptic so they don't immediately look like a spider you'll see a web and you'll see a cobweb and you might think there's a bit of debris stuck in it but if you touch it it'll start moving and it's actually a spider hiding itself looking like a bit of dead leaf or something so why why do we want spiders in our gardens 
Um, well, as with every organism that we have around us, they occupy a niche in our ecosystem and they have a very important job to do. So it's a case of controlling the numbers of their prey species. So whether it's mosquitoes or aphids or any of these other, you know, I mean, obviously they'll, pr they'll predate anything that is a size that they can catch. So we're talking large spiders will take on large insects, butterflies, grasshoppers, that kind of thing. Um, some species are even capable of taking small vertebrates, so um, reptiles, amphibians, maybe even small mammals. But on the whole, it's mostly invertebrates. So they are important to controlling those organisms that they prey upon. Those organisms that they prey upon, if their numbers were allowed to go unchecked, they'd be causing all kinds of problems. A lot of them are pests to our plants. A lot of them are uh, carriers of disease. So, you know, parasites that feed on us, mosquitoes, fleas, all that kind of stuff, ticks. Spiders will eat them if they can catch them. And so they keep disease vectors under control as well. So the biggest part that they play on a global scale, or like on a large scale in this country, is in agriculture. They keep pests of agriculture under control. If we suddenly didn't have spiders anymore overnight, agriculture would collapse and we'd be completely... So, you know, uh, uh, we'd be in trouble. <laughs> so, yeah, it would, be, it would be difficult because not only would we have issues with food, with our food chain and our food supply, we'd also then have problems with the disease. So we'd have malaria running rampant and all these other bloodborne pathogens that are kept under control by spiders hunting the insects that spread them. Yeah. So, and so they're important in our gardens. Are there any sort of main predominant species we can look out for and spot in our own gardens? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So. Um, I think really summertime is the best time to be seeing the adults, so the more noticeable, larger specimens. Late summer, you'll see, so moving into autumn, you'll see our typical garden spiders, the ones that are in the big round orb web. I've actually got one tattooed on my arm. <laughs> that's, the, that's the one I've seen <laughs> yeah, in my garden. Yeah, yeah. So that's Araneus diadematus, um, cross orb weaver, European garden spider. It's got a number of different common names. Um, but yeah, most commonly seen in the middle of a web. Usually we'll see the big, large females, because the females, they get larger than the males and when they're full of eggs their abdomens get quite big they're quite impressive spiders so those are very commonly seen um, another one people aren't terribly fond of but do tend to see a lot of in late summer early autumn are the house spiders so the females you tend to see more outside but then you'll see the big ones running around inside your house very fast they're the males and they're out looking for mates at that time of year so they've got a mission and they've got to accomplish it very quickly because they haven't gone lo got long left by the time they reach that size so what I tell people is instead of freaking out and getting worried about seeing one of them in your house just think of the fact that he's not got long left just let him do his thing you know um but yeah i mean on sunny days you'll often see wolf spiders running around on the ground so our wolf spiders that you commonly see over here are quite small so they're maybe about the size of a 5p a 20p the bigger ones um they will be out in the sun so they like to seek out sunny rock, rocks or walls you see them running around in your garden on your flower beds and stuff so they're quite often uh, seen and also if you want to have a close look because these are another one that's quite cryptic very well concealed are flower spiders so flower crab spiders also known as goldenrod crab spiders they're flower uh, mimics so they they can change color from white to bright yellow i've seen the white ones yes yes yeah so they can if you see a white one it has the capability to also turn yellow so if you were to move it onto a yellow bush within about a week it will have turned yellow some of them have uh, like carmine stripes on their abdomen so they've got like a lovely pink color to them some of them have some green on them as well so they can be really very vibrantly beautiful colorful spiders but they can be right under your nose and you won't know they're there because they are so well camouflaged on the flowers that they sit up that they sit on and they don't move until they catch something so usually the giveaway is why is there a dead bee stuck to that flower oh it's not a flower <laughs> 
see. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. Now, so, you mentioned the wolf spider running around the garden. Mm. It got me thinking, do all spiders use webs to catch their prey? No. So wolf spiders are active hunters. They'll use their silk to make egg sacs and sometimes make retreats that they will rest in during the day or night, depending off the, if they're nocturnal or diurnal species. Um, but they're active hunters, which means that of the spiders, they're one of those that's got better eyesight, so they can detect movement visually much better than other spiders or orb weavers. Their eyes to detect mostly movement in terms of shadow rather than actual detail. So using a combination of their eyesight... And and also their ability to sense vibration using the hairs on their body. Um, they're able to sense prey that's moving around and they will actually go after it. So orb weavers, like the one we were discussing a minute ago, they use their webs. That's how they hunt. They can't hunt on the ground. They won't go looking for prey. They wait for it to get caught in their web and that's it. Um, but yeah, wolf spiders, jumping spiders. So we sometimes see the zebra jumping spiders on the walls. And our, yes, you know, little, little things that shoot yeah, around, don't yes, they? Yeah, yes. absolutely. And if you see them up close, they're very endearing because they've got the big sort of doll-like eyes almost. They're very sort of inquisitive little faces. They kind of remind me of kittens in a lot of ways. Um, tell, tell my daughter that, who's not keen on spiders. <laughs> tell her to look up some videos of jumping spiders chasing laser pointers because oh, yes. they will, because oh, they can see them. So they think, oh, it's prey and they'll go after it. They remind me of kittens. Um, but those are also visual hunters, so they will be out patrolling, looking for prey, and when they see it, they'll go after it. So, yeah, there are plenty of spiders out there that don't use silk to hunt. The other sort of spider I come across in gardens are those that build a, a tunnel a web within a wall, usually. Oh, yeah. I think some can be rare. What I do know is you can lure them out with a tuning fork. Yes, tuning fork, electric toothbrush, anything that has a bit of a vibration to it. Sometimes even I'll use my phone. So I'll make my phone vibrate and I'll have like a blade of grass or something and I'll hold the blade of grass up to the phone and touch the blade of grass to the web while the phone's vibrating and that'll be enough to coax them out. But the spiders you're likely referring to are Segestria uh, family genus sorry the Segestria genus in the UK we have three of them so we've got Segestria florentina Segestria bavarica and Segestria sinoculata um, Segestria florentina is the one that people are probably most familiar with because it's mostly jet black but it's got bright green calissary which are like the mouth parts sorry the mouth parts um, and I mean they're quite I don't like using the word aggressive because they're not aggressive they're defensive and they're quite sort of enthusiastic hunters. So what they do is they will make a, a tube like of silk that they sit inside and they have radial lines of silk that extend out from the mouth of that tube which act as tripwires. So anything that crosses those tripwires triggers a response from the spider, it comes rushing out, grabs the prey and goes back in. So yeah, they are... Um, Tube web spiders, I think that's what we call them commonly over here. You'll have to forgive me, I'm terrible with common names. I've, I've got science brain, so it's all, you know, scientific names. Um, but I think we call those tube web spiders over here. Any of my arachnologist friends who might be listening, please don't call me out on that if I got yeah, it wrong. I mean, gardeners are the same. I mean, a lot of yeah. us learn the Latin names, and then when it comes to the common names, well, we get yeah. lost because also course they're given half a dozen common names for the same plant so it yeah, does get confusing does get which is why experts like you refer to the scientific name all the time yeah exactly and you know when it comes to the science of it you know say for example tracking the movement of introduced species that are that their range is, incre is increasing people might say okay well we want to keep track of this particular species of false widow but there might be four different species in this country that people colloquially refer to as false widows so people will be sending records and saying oh i've seen a false widow but it's not the species we're interested in, but if you refer to it as Steatoda nobilis or Steatoda grossa, we know exactly. That's why the scientific names are important, because they're concise. There's nothing else that has that name. That's interesting, because I have spotted a, a false widow in one of the gardens I, I, I go to. Mm. Um, I didn't realise there are four different 
species oh, within so the genus? Within the, there's more than that. Yeah, there's plenty within the genus. But in the UK, we have most commonly encountered Steatoda grossa, Steatoda nobilis, Steatoda bipunctata. Um, I believe Steatoda triangulosa is around, not quite as commonly encountered. And we have got some records of Steatoda pecoliana, which is not a native. We're starting to see them in some areas down south. And right, southeast. so the others are native, are they? Because I, I, could, I thought they were new. No, so I believe nobilis was introduced a while back. I don't think it's fully native again someone's going to call me out on this I'm you know this is all off the this is all on the fly off yeah, the cuff I I'm catching you out I know <laughs> um, I believe that one has come over at some point and that's why there's interest in watching where its numbers are spreading to because and I'm going to fact check myself on this later I don't think it's been recorded in Ireland on you know in, in Ireland yet and it's spreading so from I think it might be South Africa originated from um, came over will have started out in one of the docks down southeast somewhere and is gradually sort of spreading out its range is spreading out sort of radially outwards across the country because it's very adaptable it can live in garages gardens whatever it doesn't seem fussed about our outdoor temperatures so it, it does okay so we're watching to see what its numbers are doing what its population is doing where it's reaching and whether or not it's got to ireland yet and if it hasn't when it does you know because with horticulture and with just sort of people sending stuff with much more frequency these days and I don't just mean plants I mean anything you know shipping anything the uh, the chances of these things being sent by accident somewhere are vastly increased these days because it's so easy to to ship things all over the place so we're finding them popping up in places where they wouldn't have before and it's not just that species it's all sorts you know um, I did see a discussion recently amongst some spider friends on Twitter about other species that are showing up in the country from mainland Europe Mediterranean areas um, with much more frequency and it's a bit of a combination of things like the lockdown has sort of brought out the interest in more people so they're actually paying more attention and therefore more records are being made but also climate change is playing a part species that wouldn't have been able to survive here before are now finding milder temperatures and therefore are able to establish a bit easier um, and like I said just the frequency of moving things around shipping goods and importing goods and all that kind of stuff so that's why we keep tabs on these things. See it's a fascinating subject if people want to sort of see more about what you say are you on social media? Yes yeah, I am so if you want spider stuff best place is probably my twitter so it's t underscore francis that's t-e-a underscore f-r-a-n-c-i-s and on instagram I'm t's jungle so that's t-e-a-s jungle all one word. Brilliant. Thanks for your time. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you to everyone who spent time to explain their products, services or passions to me. It was a wonderful day and my phone tells me I walked 6.5 kilometres at the show so I was ready for a sit down on the train as I travelled back to Gloucestershire. Don't forget, as this is being aired, we're still in peak snowdrop season. So if you want to find out more about the passion people have towards the humble snowdrop, go to my website where I write a little bit about the phenomenon of galanthomania and also have my snowdrop price index where I list over 70 snowdrops that sell in excess of £100 for a single bulb. Now, I never ask, but I know some of you have been very loyal listeners for some time. If you have the time to leave a review on your podcast app, I'd very much appreciate it. Tell a friend, or you can tag me on Instagram and tell me which part of this episode you enjoyed the most. I'd love to see what you think. I would also love to be able to mention you and your Instagram account in the next show. 
I can be found at Joff Elphick on Instagram and my website is joffelphick.co.uk. Don't forget to recommend me to your gardening club. I'm travelling most weeks to give my intriguingly named talk Crayfish on the Lawn. If distance is a problem, I can still entertain your group anywhere on planet Earth through the magic of Zoom. If you haven't yet had a look, pop over to genus.gs to see how you can transform your gardening experience by wearing clothes specifically designed by gardeners for gardeners. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to follow this podcast so you won't miss an episode. And in the meantime, may your secateurs be well honed, your gardening year enriched by an invasion of arachnids, and your life just enhanced a little by the enthusiasm of the guests I've spoken to today. I'll see you next time.